You're listening to the Talking Rheumatology Research Podcast, brought to you by the British Society for Rheumatology. Welcome to the Talking Rheumatology Research Podcast. Hello, my name is Dr Eileen Tan. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Rheumatology Advances in Practice. I'm also a rheumatologist in Leeds. Today, we're going to discuss an interesting paper looking at the effectiveness and safety of secokinumab in ankylosing spondylitis, a real-life data from the Midlands Ankylosing Spondylitis Collaboration. This paper is published in Open Access in Rheumatology Advances in Practice. I'm delighted to be joined by the lead author, Dr. Adiola Ajibade. Dr. Ajibade, please would you introduce yourself? Thank you very much. Thank you for having me here. I am Adiola Ajibade. I very recently moved to Somerset NHS Foundation Trust and I work as a specialist grade doctor. But prior to then, I was a senior clinical fellow at the Royal Wolverhampton NHS Trust where we had this um, research done. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Would you like to tell us about the background to your study? How did it come about? Okay, thank you for that question. Following the approval of Sekakinuma by um, NICE, it was a very much welcome development as before then, we had limited options for patients with ankylosing spondylitis. And that's because the only option that was available after NSAID was TNF inhibitors. So for patients who could not tolerate TNF inhibitors, there was no option to switch them. There was no alternative to switch them to. So the approval of Sekikinumab was a very welcome development. And then it went through various randomized control trials, long-term extension studies, and that justified the efficacy and safety. But we all know that um, generalizability of control trials is limited. As patients that come into our clinics, they they are not controlled. So... Uh, we needed to ascertain that this medication will do the same thing. The effect that was seen in the trials will be the same effect that will be seen in the general um, rheumatology clinic. And uh, we decided to look at the real-world efficacy of um, sequinumab in our rheumatology patients. And then we felt that if we're going to do this, we probably needed to do it right. Ankylosing spondylitis is not a very common disease. And then we needed the number to be able to say whatever it is that we found in the study is justifiable and then we can generalize it. So we felt making it a multi-center study would probably be better than making it a single center study. And again, we are talking about generalizability. So for that, we need to like include a diverse set of patients rather than a patient from just uh, a single place. So that's what birthed the Midlands Ankylosing Spondylitis uh, collaboration. So we came together and the plan was to access the electronic records of patients uh, who were started on secukinumab between 2017 and 2019 across the Midlands. So eventually, uh, we got data from five trusts, and those are the data that were included in this particular study. So that's how this came to be. Thank you. So what did you look at in terms of the data for these patients? Okay, so the plan was to see the, the efficacy and the, that was based on the NICE response criteria. The NICE response criteria had to do with BASDI score. So for that, we expected at least a 50% improvement in the BASDI score or a reduction of two units, as well as a drop of two centimeters in the uh, visual analog score. 
And then we also threw in the CRP to see if there was an improvement in the um, CRP of the patient. And that was after 16 weeks of treatment with secukinumab. So what we did was look into the data across this different trust to get a baseline of the BASDAI score, the VAS score, and the CRP score, and then to check again after 16 weeks, and then to see what percentage of the patients actually will eventually meet the NICE response criteria. So that was what we looked at as our primary outcome. And then the secondary outcome was to now compare the variables between patients who are biologic naive and patients who had been exposed to TNF inhibitors, and then to compare and to see if there is any difference in the improvement rate in these two classes of patients. Thank you. What were your findings then? What were the key findings from your study? Okay, so well, at the end of the day, we're able to gather data from more than five patients across the five trusts. So the trusts involved were Royal Wolverhampton NHS Trust, Queen's Hospital, Burton, Lisa Royal Infirmary, Robert Johnson, Agnes Hunt Hospital, and Sandwell and West Birmingham City Hospital. So across this, between 2017 and 2019, there were 105 patients who had been placed on secukinumab for ankylosing spondylitis treatment. So for those patients, the mean baseline BASDAI score was 7.05, and the mean baseline VAS score was 7.63. So after 16 weeks, we found that there was a mean reduction in the BASDAI of 2.09 and a mean reduction in VAS score of 2.92. And this was statistically significant at p-value less than 0.0001. And also, there was a statistically significant reduction in the CRP. And one important thing also, when we compared between the biologic naive and the patients who had been exposed, to biologics before, we realized that the BAS dye was uh, much more significantly um, improved in patients who are biologic naive. And that's uh, a good thing because even in the NICE guideline, it says that we could use, it, may, it gives room for the use of um, secukinumab as a first biologic. So, I mean, finding this is a very good development in use of secukinumab in the patient. And also we found with regards to adverse events, I think for that is something we'll probably want to mention also. And it was only four patients who stopped, which is quite good out of 105. And only one of the patients stopped because of inefficacy. So that means the, the, the tolerance is quite good. And then the response rate also is good. Okay, I forgot to mention that we had response rates. 62.7% of the patients actually met the NICE response criteria, which is also very, very comparable to what was seen in clinical trials in the Measure 1 and Measure 2 trials. And again, adverse event was quite low. Among them, it was about 12.4%, and which is quite was actually lower than what was found at the um, trials. But we have to take this with caution, I mean, considering the fact that it some might have been left out. I mean, when it doctor is seeing the patient, patient might not mention a cough he had like two weeks ago. So such adverse event might not have been documented. But it's also quite nice to see that the um, adverse event was quite low among the patients. Thank you. You mentioned that the efficacy is similar to clinical trials, which is reassuring to know. Were there any other findings that when you compared to clinical trials were either similar or different? I think basically it's the adverse events, which was quite different. 
because for measure one, measure two, we had about um, 68%, 61%. But for us, we had 12.7%, I think, uh, of patients who had ad- adverse events. So I think that's a major thing that was different uh, because, I mean, this was just over 16 weeks, so it's not like a long-term thing. But the response criteria were, well, for the trials, they use the ASAS criteria, but we use the BASDAI because this was based on NICE um, criteria. So we can't compare it like for like, but for the ASAS 20, also they had 61% in trial. So I think those are the ones that uh, were probably the same. And then the difference was just in the adverse event. Thank you. So knowing what you know now from the the study you've just done, how would the findings influence your clinical care or clinical practice for patients? I think the major thing is just that increased confidence to embrace a new medication that has been proved. And the fact also that there is that room to go for secukinumab first. In case, for instance, I get a patient who has heart failure in YHA class 3, class 4, and I'm like, okay, TNF inhibitor is probably not the best to go for in this situation, then I, I can see that if I go for secukinumab, the efficacy has been demonstrated, not only in trials, but in local data. I mean, I miss the patient I have seen in clinic. So that kind of gives me that confidence. And then I know that the adverse rate is... I mean, I'm not so, of course, it's not like I just put patients on it and then we don't look out for adverse events, but at least I have that confidence to put patients on alternative medications. So that's the change that I have been able to incorporate into my practice since this publication. I think I agree with you. I think um, real world data is increasingly important for us to know how it translates to patients in in clinical practice. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice for other centres who may be looking at conducting similar studies? From your experience, would you do anything differently or how would you advise other centres? From my experience, I think two things that I felt I probably have done differently or not. Number one, of course, it is a multi-centre study. So a lot more people are involved. So one thing that I probably learned is that at the point of gathering the data, as much as ethically accepted, it's better to extract as much information as possible. Yes, we have our primary outcome, and there's that tendency to target the information we're extracting based on the primary outcome. But considering this is a multi-center study, if at the end of the day, during the analysis, things come up, confounders come up, and you're like, okay, uh, maybe we should analyze this, and then you realize that data is not available. It's a bit difficult to now go around to the different centers. I mean, it's a dynamic situation. People are moving, new members are coming, members are going. So because I had that kind of challenge at some point here, because at the end of the day, it was difficult reaching out to all the members that contributed to it. So I think at, at the outset, at the get-go, it's better to extract as much information as possible for the data. Yeah. Well said. I think preparation is so key, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And to, to realise what may be important um, so that you get all the data at, at, the, at the get-go. So in your paper, you mentioned that you're planning a longer follow-up study. Are you able to tell us about the potential follow-up study? Considering the fact that the initial study was a follow-up of just 16 weeks 
thus uh, give us good information on the effectiveness of uh, cyclokinumab in ankylosing spondylitis patient. But we can't draw conclusions on the safety just yet. So the plan is to, I mean, this was uh, done in patients in between 2017 and 2019. And those patients, some of them are still on cyclokinumab. And it would be good to know the outcome, the long-term outcome for the patient. So we intend to follow them up for probably another five years and then um, extend this to include patients with psoriatic arthritis and also evaluate the effectiveness and the um, safety of secukinumab in both ankylosing spondylitis and psoriatic arthritis and follow them up over a long duration of time. Thank you. That sounds like a very good plan. So I certainly would be looking forward to to seeing the results of these studies when they're done. So thank you, Dr. Ajibadi, for a very interesting discussion about your paper, which is now available free to access online at the Rheumatology Advances in Practice website. Thank you very much for having me. I consider this a great honor. And I'll also very quickly like to say thank you to all the group that we worked with, which are the uh, Midland and Closing Spondylitis Collaboration, and then to my seniors for the opportunity to do this and the backing and support they gave me. Thank you. Fantastic work. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Talking Rheumatology Research. Until the next episode, goodbye. Thank you for listening to Talking Rheumatology Research, brought to you by BSR. Please do rate, share and subscribe through your favourite podcast app.